From Jackson State University, I am Rachel James Terry, and welcome to the Let's Talk The Podcast, where we talk the real about the good things going on at JSU. Our very first guest of our new revamped and refreshed season is Dr. Byron DeAndre Ori, professor and former chair of the political science department at JSU. He earned a BS degree in business administration from Mississippi Valley State University, but we won't hold it against him. An MPA from the University of Mississippi, an MA from the State University of New York at Stony Brook, and we call him doctor for a reason because he holds a PhD from the University of New Orleans. Dr. Ori has taught at the University of Mississippi, the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and his research is in the area of race and politics, focusing heavily on legislative behavior, implicit bias, and racial attitudes. So we are going to welcome to Let's Talk The Podcast, Dr. Ori. Thank you for having me. And you know what? I said that I would wear blue and white if they paid me in green. Yes. Valley's colors are green and white. Yeah, I get the joke. (laughs) It's a pleasure to have you on the mic today, Dr. Ori. So we're going to discuss uh, your research and the 50th anniversary of the Political Science Department and JSU's robust political science pipeline. So let's tackle the hard, and then we're going to end with the soft landing. So we're going to talk about your implicit bias research, which you launched in 2016. So let's see what was happening like the year before this took place, which was Dylan Roof, um, a white man, walked into a black church in Charleston, South Carolina, and he joined those there in prayer before he opened fire and killed nine people that night. Also in 2015, there was the death of Freddie Gray, a 25-year-old Baltimore resident um, who sustained a fatal spinal cord injury in police custody. Also, there was the death of Sandra Bland, 28-year-old black woman who was found dead hanging in her Texas jail cell three days after being arrested for traffic violations. And then in 2016, according to CNN, there was an increase in hate crimes um, that were reported to the FBI. Um, now, let me clarify that hate crimes are not always racially motivated. But then in 2016, Dr. Ori, you and a team of students examined the health effects of exposure to police and protester violence, Confederate imagery, and implicit bias. So with all of that going on, tell me what was the intention behind the science of what you and and the team of students That's a whole lot going on. All right, so um, let me just back up a little bit. In 2001, I worked at the University of Mississippi. And that was the year that they had a flag vote to change the Mississippi State flag. The flag vote actually failed miserably, 65% to 35% in keeping the old Mississippi State flag, which had the Confederate symbol on the left canton. So this was traumatic for me because I was really hopeful that we would change the flag. Um, I had just come back home from graduate school, and moved back to Mississippi. So after the flag vote, I picked up and moved away from here to the University of Nebraska, of all places. (laughs) Nebraska was not quite, you know, in terms of the demographics. It was not like Mississippi. So I had some colleagues who were doing some research in the area of biology and politics, which was really cutting edge at the time. But they were doing work on genetics and politics, and... I thought that this was very unique, but it took me aback because I thought about eugenics. And so I did not do research in that area right away. When I came to Jackson State, 
one of my former students, turned me on to research in the area of biology and politics. And I found out that it was actually research on twin data to see whether or not there was a correlation between twins and political behavior. And so it was not what I thought it was. Fast forward, I started doing research in biology and politics related to psychophysiology. And given my experiences with the Mississippi State flag and the trauma that I endured, I said, you know, I'd like to examine whether or not people who observe or see the flag actually endure trauma. And, you know, I even got emotional when I was, you know, going through interviews or, you know, receiving interviews related to the flag. A lot of people knew that I was doing research in that area. So I got a lot of interviews when I came back because there were efforts to change the flag. So the efforts were ongoing. Ongoing, right. Mm -hmm. And what I thought originally was that I would serve as an expert witness in some case that would be brought before the courts to change the flag because in order to file a lawsuit, you have to show injury. And my argument was that the trauma was a form of injury. And so what I, um, what I was motivated to do was go back to the biology and politics work and look at the physiological response that people have toward what I call racially traumatic stressful symbols and events. The flag was considered to be one of those racial traumatic symbols. And so we examined individuals' response when they saw the flag. And so not to go into the weeds too much, but the sympathetic response to the flag is, you know, how much do you sweat? If you sweat too much, that could be um, dangerous for you. And so we examined how much one sweat when they see the flag. But it wasn't just the flag. It was other, like, racially charged imagery. Yes. Correct? Yes. But in this case, the first piece was on the flag. Okay. And I thought that we'd be able to use this evidence in the court. But as an academic, you know, you take a bit long to do your research. And I took too long. And by the time I was finished, there was a flag vote. Mm -hmm. And the flag. In 2020. The flag vote actually succeeded. Seventy some odd percent in support of a new flag. Yes. And by that time, my research was dated. But you did do so you didn't share have a chance to share the research with so you don't you don't feel like your research had any impact because you did talk about your research. You did interviews about the research that you were doing. So I guess my next question would be, and just to make your point, so in 2020, on Election Day, nearly 73% of Mississippi residents voted to change the flag. And the new flag has been nicknamed the New Magnolia. And the vote had put an end to years of cause for Mississippi's black community and other groups to end the state's attachment to a Civil War era. So do you think research like your own played a role in bringing the Confederate flag era to an end? Because you did a series of interviews and you did kind of highlight your research was elevated. So do you feel like your research added to the narrative to end the flag? Well, in this case, not really. Um, Academics tend to do research and it ends up on a shelf and we have to dust it off in order to try and, you know, deliver it to the masses. And we don't do a good job of that. What I think was um, impetus behind the changing of the flag was economic issues. And then you had athletics where 
um, Hill, the student or athlete at Mississippi State, said that he wouldn't play at Mississippi State if they continued to wear the, I mean, wave the flag. And so there were a number of issues that led to the taking down, if you will, of the flag. Mm -hmm. So my research, although I was able to chronicle over the years, I published probably six or so articles on the flag, I don't think it had an impact, um, but I was able to document how people responded, you know, psychologically when they um, saw that emblem or that symbol. Can you explain that a little bit, how it impacted people? So when people saw the flag, we had, so we have a psychophysiological lab, the Jackson Political Science Research Lab, and we showed um, individuals or respondents or subjects, we showed them an image of a flag, and we sought to determine whether or not when they saw that flag, was there a physiological response? And that physiological response was how much they sweat. The how much they sweat was, and I don't mean to get so much into the weeds, but it was the response was the sympathetic nervous system would be, um, would be ignited, if you will. But was that the only indicator? Because I don't sweat a whole lot. So <laughs> for me, would it be like heartbeat, breathing, or was it simply just how much you sweat? Yeah, so it's not sweating profusely. Okay. It's a... It's, the equipment can determine how much you sweat, okay. and it can measure in these measurements how much you sweat. Okay. And so we found that blacks who did observe the flag were more likely to have this sympathetic response to the flag. And it was actually a function of their racial identity. So blacks who had a strong um, connection to other blacks were more likely to respond in a negative way, if you will, to the flag. Okay. So how do you f how did you feel when you learned that the that the voters were turning the tide in Mississippi and they elected to change the flag, being that you had put all this time and effort and emotion into your research? Well, I never thought the flag vote would, you know, go in the direction of changing the flag. I remember when I was a Kellogg fellow, um, there was a gentleman who said that we should try and uh, mobilize voters to change the flag, and I said that we'd be wasting our time. So I was pleasantly surprised when the flag actually, you know, ended up in the direction that it ended up. Um, I just wasn't confident that Mississippians would be progressive enough to change the flag, and I still don't believe it was because of them being progressive. So what do you believe? So why are you cynical about about the vote and, and why do you still not believe that Mississippi is is moving to a more progressive uh, state, so to speak? Because of the conservatism, particularly racial conservatism that still exists, I think that it was an embarrassment to um, the voters to be still associated with a flag that was associated with the Civil War and them being considered as hicks or, you know, rednecks or backwood folk. And so I think that it was more of them wanting to change the image of the state as opposed to them changing their hearts. Um, if you look at in recent weeks, 
we had a um, vote by the legislature, and it was passed by um, the governor approved it, where, you know, there was an attempt to take over Jackson. And so there was an attempt to expand the police, the state police. And this is really, really problematic, because if you go back to the Jim Crow era, like post-1965, after the Voting Rights Act was passed, there were bills that were put in place where, because blacks were a majority, they said that now we would appoint um, supervisors and school board members as opposed to vote on them. Mm-hmm. Democracy is to be ruled by the people, and appointments of judges and whatnot is not a democracy. And so, you know, if you just take a look at those type of issues, the attempt to take over the Jackson Municipal Airport, there are numerous issues where there have been conservative approaches that are racially conservative. And so I don't see, based on those types of actions, um, which are inconsistent, which someone would say is the Mississippi State flag changing because they changed their hearts. Understood. We're going to pause for a moment and head to this quick break, grab you a sandwich, jets into the restroom, but make sure you return so we can get back to talking about the Jackson State University. We'll be right back after this. Since 1877, Jackson State University has been training students for a life of service and leadership to impact our global society. Ranked among the best HBCUs in the country, Jackson State University offers 47 undergraduate, 37 masters, one specialist, and 13 doctoral degree programs. Whether you're interested in the arts, education, public health, the sciences, or business, we're here to take you from ready to JSU ready. Visit jsums.edu and apply today. And we are back to Let's Talk V, sitting here with Dr. Ori. He is talking about his research, uh, student pipeline, and the 50th anniversary of the political science department. Previously, Dr. Ori, you mentioned racial conservatism among whites, but you've been doing research about negative racial um, implicit bias among blacks. For example, Tyree Nichols, the young man who was murdered by black officers in Tennessee. So let's talk implicit bias. Yeah, so let me start by saying that, you know, I'd been doing research on white racism for quite some time, and on quite some time. And I said that we know that white racism exists. What I, you know, thought was important is to understand intra-racial attitudes, and that is, you know, black racial attitudes toward other blacks. And these are negative racial attitudes. So we did you know, research using survey data. And uh, while I was in grad school, I said, let me just see if blacks who um, utilize or have the same attitudes as whites will behave in the same way. And I found that, you know, there were racial conservatives who were black. I got a lot of pushback when I was doing the research because people were saying that those questions were not designed for blacks. And I said, well, if blacks are answering the questions very similar to whites, then we need to examine that. And so I did research on opposition to welfare, opposition to affirmative action amongst these racial conservatives. 
and you know these racial. Now was that a mixed? Was that a mixed group? Was that black racial conservative conservatives and white racial conservatives? Is that what you're well, saying? Well, I just focused on blacks. Okay. So my research now focuses only on blacks. Okay. And so as it relates to police bias, I wanted to see whether or not blacks um, possess attitudes that were more consistent with blue. And so blue meaning that, you know, once they joined the police force, they began to um, take on these attitudes that were a part of the institution. And this institution um, is, you know, rooted in structural racism. Right. And this structure is, you know, how police respond to blacks based on the negative stereotypes that they have of blacks. Right. And so I wanted to engage in some work that we had been doing on implicit bias. Implicit bias are those non-conscious, not unconscious, but non-conscious attitudes. People do not know that they have them. And we decided to utilize assimilation. And that simulation was a shoot or don't shoot simulation. Now, some people will say, well, you're simply using a game and you can't, you know, determine whether or not people have these biases using a game. But. So explain that a little bit, the assimilation, the shoot or don't shoot. Explain exactly what that was, what that looked like, what you were asking people to do. Yeah, so it was assimilation where individuals would look or observe a black person who had a um, a gun or a black person who had something like a cell phone. And then they would look at a white person who had a gun or, or had a cell phone. So in other words, an image would appear on the screen, whether it was a black or white, with or without a gun. And we wanted to examine, and let me back up, it was based on a split-second decision. So they had 500 to 800 milliseconds to respond. They positioned their um, fingers on the keys on the computer. They pushed one key to shoot, one key to not shoot. This is really important because whether or not you have a real gun or you're on the computer, you're still engaging in information processing where you have to make a split-second decision. Now, clearly, it's not, you know, the anxiety or adrenaline flow that you would have if you were, you know, in a real situation. In a real situation. Mm-hmm. And what we found was blacks who possess these negative stereotypes of blacks, and these were blacks are unintelligent relative to whites, Uh, Blacks were lazy relative to whites. And those who said that blacks were, you know, more lazy or more unintelligent when compared to whites were placed in the category of these internalized racism or possessing these internalized racist attitudes. We also looked at it from the angle of what we call the double consciousness or what W.B. Du Bois called the double consciousness. And we examined positive racial attitudes, which was, you know, one of Ms. Link fate. Do you believe what happens to other blacks impacts your own life? And we found that blacks who possess this set of internalized racist beliefs and attitudes were more likely to shoot blacks in error. 
compared to those blacks who had a strong racial identity to other blacks. Mm. And this is, you know, a very, very strong finding because it suggests that, you know, as it relates to training, that if you can increase the positive imagery or substantive information about blacks, then you can constrain those negative attitudes. Right. So an increase in racial identity can constrain internalized racism. So you think over time, the more negative perceptions and the more negative imagery that black people are exposed to about other black people, then we internalize that and we see ourselves as negative. Yes, yes. And so, you know, that's socialization. Mm -hmm. Um, Blacks see the same media that whites see. Um, Blacks are, you know, exposed to reality shows, for example, where, you know, there are negative stereotypes of blacks. Mm -hmm. Just media in general, and, you know, you have to say it, in some of the music, there are songs that portray blacks in a very negative way. Mm -hmm. And this is institutional, because there are songs that portray blacks in a positive way, but they're not... not the ones that are amplified. Exactly. And so blacks internalize these negative racial attitudes about other blacks, And in this particular case, these police officers were more likely to shoot unarmed blacks. This also can relate to, you know, the death of Tyree Nichols and others, because this is not the only death where blacks have, you know, been found to have killed other blacks. Right. You're talking about blacks in positions of authority and power. Yes. Mm -hmm. Blacks as it relates to law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And in this case, I think that if you look at it from a structural as well as an institutional perspective, those blacks were a member of this squad that was blue. And so they didn't focus on the fact that he was black. They were acting from the identity of blue, meaning, you know, part of the police system. And so, you know, those blacks who had these negative racial attitudes of other blacks were involved in a killing that involved an, another black. So what do you hope to accomplish with this, with your implicit bias research? Well, you know, we think that based on our findings and based on other findings related to implicit bias and negative racial attitudes of blacks, we can possibly utilize it in trainings to show that, you know, not only whites, but blacks internalize these negative stereotypes. And if we can, you know, work to improve those negative stereotypes to where they're, you know, more positive, then we think that, you know, this can minimize the police violence against blacks. It's going to be tough because some of this is hardwired. Right. But it sounds like you're doing good work, though, and it can be beneficial. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's cutting-edge work. Mm-hmm. Um, there are not many studies that examine black intra-racial attitudes, right. particularly in the area of implicit bias. Right. And a lot of people use that word very loosely, but we actually, you know, utilize the science and, you know, examine whether or not um, blacks internalize negative stereotypes of other blacks and have implicit biases toward other blacks. Right. So, Dr. Ori, we're going to pivot a little bit. Uh, from implicit bias to a little bit more of a lighter topic. 
We're going to talk about your students. Um, the Department of Political Science has done a great job not only providing opportunities for your students, but helping them get to the next level, like graduate school or fellowships. Um, Jordan Jefferson in 2019 became a JSU Rhodes Scholar finalist, and he went on to Harvard and, and is being mentored by the great Congressman Benny Thompson. Um, I think last year, Chelsea Waddell, a, a political science honor student, was offered a full ride to attend Syracuse, UC San Diego, the University of Michigan, Northwestern, UCLA, and a few other prestigious universities. Um, Kennedy Harrison has been accepted into the University of Chicago, Vanderbilt, and Rice uh, for her PhD. Erin Eatman has been accepted to the University of Florida to pursue her PhD. And there's Macy Brown, a Truman Scholar, the first in the university's history. So... Explain the political science juice to me, the sauce. What is the secret to having so many great scholars and exposing them and landing such great opportunities for them? Yeah, I like to boast about this. For example, our political science department had produced 20 PhD students in the last 10 years. That's tops in the country, mm -hmm. uh, or top in the country. And we're really proud about that. The way that we've been able to increase the pipeline, if you will, as it relates to um, blacks, political scientists, is we send them to summer programs. Because we have a dearth of human capital here, um, we you know, oftentimes may not have the personnel to train them in, for example, quantitative analysis. We send them to other universities, and during the summer, they've gone to places like Princeton, Harvard, They've gone to the top Ph.D. program in the country, the University of Michigan, where we've had two students to be accepted into that program, and one has graduated and now teaches at Amherst College, one of the top liberal arts colleges in the country. Right. So we have, you know, a system in place where we've been able to expose these students. They come back knowing more than we know. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean... That's the strategy that we've been using, so and it's worked. The strategy is summer school. Y'all hear that? Summer school. Is that what you're telling me, Dr. Orr? Yes, it is. <laughs> um, and they actually enjoy it. Yeah. Um, you know, once they begin to do the research, they realize the importance of research. Mm -hmm. I, always I always preach empirical evidence, you know, not anecdotal. In other words, don't tell me, you know, what you've heard. I want you to observe and to conduct a systematic analysis that informs me of what your beliefs are. And so, you know, they have been exposed to those research opportunities, and it actually helps them to, you know, go on to pursue PhDs. That's right. Um, so not only is it about summer school, Dr. Ori, it's also about like connecting, um, building relationships. Can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, that's extremely important. I'm glad you um, made that point. I met Professor Vince Hutchings, who is one of the top scholars in the area of race and politics and, you know, teaches at the University of Michigan. I met him and I'm dating myself back in 1991. Uh, 1991. <laughs> We both attended University of Michigan summer program similar to these students, and now Vince is teaching at the University of Michigan, and so we've developed a co I mean, a developed a collaboration with the University of Michigan where we send students there for the summer 
And, you know, this has been a game changer mm-hmm. uh, for our students. Um, so well, y'all met as students? We met as graduate students, and Graduate yes. students in the 90s. And then from that developed, continued a relationship, uh, intellectual, academic, and a personal relationship, and then turned that into a pipeline for your students. Yeah, and I have another colleague, you know, Ron Mickey, who's at University of Michigan as well, we met here in Mississippi when he was writing his dissertation, but Rob will stay up. I remember I had students in my house writing their personal statements, and Rob would stay on the phone with these students so that you know they could actually produce a you know a good personal statement. Yeah. So the relationships really matter. Yeah, you're leveraging those relationships for your students. Yeah, and you know those relationships matter. Yeah. So, Dr. Ori, this year marks the 51st anniversary of the Department of Political Science, but you all recently celebrated the 50th anniversary because you weren't able to celebrate it last year, right? Right, correct. Okay. And so let's talk about what that, what does that mean, this milestone, reaching that milestone? The Political Science <laughs> Department has a rich history. Um, back in the 1980s, the 90s, the Political Science Department produced numerous um, lawyers who attended schools like Harvard, Yale, um, Stanford. They attended all of the top, you know, right. schools. And you all had some some of your political science alums and administrator in attendance at the celebration, like Dr. Leslie Burrow McLemore. Um, his resume reads like a book, but he was the founding chair of the political science department, if I'm not mistaken. And then Judge Carlton Reeves, who is the first black chair of the U.S. Sentencing Committee appointed by President Biden, so that kind of speaks to some of the excellence that you were talking about. Yeah, yeah, and I'd like to talk about Charles Holmes. Charles Holmes was the pre-law advisor at the time, and he and numerous faculty were very instrumental in um, these students going to these top law schools. Um, So you have Judge Reeves, for example, as a student who was a part of the pipeline at the University of Virginia, one of the top law schools in the country. Mm-hmm. So Charles Holmes is someone that, you know, I try and emulate. And when I serve as advisor to students, I want to send them to the, you know, top programs. It's no reason that our students should not be going to the top programs in the country. Right. They're capable mm-hmm. and Nothing against some of the local schools, but our students are the best, and so we send them to the best. That's right. It's been a treat talking with you today, Dr. Ori, and learning more about your research and you all's amazing political science students. Happy 50th anniversary or 51st anniversary to you all, to you and your colleagues and alumni of the Department of Political Science. And you can drop by anytime, and we will talk about the. Thank you for being our guest. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our discussion. Signing out from Jackson State University. Until next time, Jacksonians, join us for Let's Talk Deep.